Is that true of your life today? Are you living in the reality of stillness? Are you preaching to your heart, be still, my soul? Are you experiencing the the peace that passes understanding? Well, I wish I could say that that is a consistent mark of my life, but it's not. But it should be, because there are certain truths about God that allow that reality to take shape in our life. And it's what we read about in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, God will take care of all of your needs. Not your wants. <laughs> he take care of all your needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores your soul. Which means God cares about the things that matter. He cares about your soul. He cares about the deepest parts of you, and he wants to lead you to enjoyment in him regardless of what the psalmist talks about. Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. So David's heart in the midst of really hard times is to say, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the bedrock of David's life, the foundation that, that stabilized it, was the reality of the character of God, that character that we're going to look at this morning, God's character of goodness, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's hesed, his loyal, steadfast love. You can take it to the bank. He is going to be, he is dependable. You can trust him. Hmm. Well, let's go to the, the kind Lord and ask for his kindness to be shown to us as we come to our text and understand what it means to be led by the Lord and how that shows up in our life. Oh God, this morning... We pray that your kindness, the truth about who you are, that you are merciful and kind, that that reality, that truth, will change the way we live. It will change the ramblings and anxieties of our heart. It will help us to see the good things in the bad things of life in the context of your goodness and believe that even the hard things that happen to us are good because, because you are over them all. You have good intentions for us, namely, that you restore our soul. You call attention to yourself. You, you lift us up and cultivate us in a spiritual way so that we can not only delight in you, but so that we can show the world that you are dependable, that you are enough, that you're trustworthy. Lord, we don't do this the way we should. It's certainly not the consistent pattern of our life that we want it to be. So Lord, even now in these moments, may we be honest with ourselves in our absolute dependence upon you for kindness in every way. Lead us, Lord, by your kindness. And may we be emblems and ambassadors of kindness to the world around us. 
the kindness that shows the greatness of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 222. I would encourage you to, to open it up and follow along with us. There are two major themes that kind of work their way through this text. The, the word redemption, which is this goel or kinsman redeemer that, uh, that will kind of come to the surface in this text and will really um, become a prominent theme next week. So the the kinsman, the redeemer, the redemption that we can enjoy, and also kindness. And so we're going we're gonna to spend time talking about redemption next week, and we're going to just focus in on kindness this week. I thought it was interesting, as I kind of did a, a quick Google search, and I'm going to put this graphic here, up here on the screen for you. This shows the, the usage of the word kindness over the last hundred plus years, starting back in the 1800s and now working to the present day. And, and you can see that, um, that, that kindness was kind of a, a, a big talking point back in the 1800s. It kind of took a nosedive in the early 1900s and especially in the 1980s. And now it has this, this resurgence of, of talking about and, and mentioning and focusing on kindness. And certainly the Bible has much to say about kindness, but it's important for us in this study for us to orient our, our hearts and mind around what is true kindness? What is kindness? So I, I put a couple definitions up here for us. What is kindness? Well, the Oxford, Oxford Languages says that it's the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. The Merriam-Webster says the quality or state of being kind. Thank you very much, Merriam-Webster. That is so profound. Kindness is to be kind. I love it. I think I could probably have come up with that. Maybe they can put me on payroll. I, I, could, I could do that. They, they have given us a couple of synonyms, though, benevolence or courtesy. The Cambridge Dictionary says it's the quality of being generous, helpful, caring about other people. And what I often like to do is, is go back to the Merriam-Webster of 1828 and, and, and see where did... Where did these definitions kind of get their beginning points. So going back to 1828, uh, Webster says, goodwill, benevolence, that temper or disposition which delights in contributing to the happiness of others, which is exercised cheerfully in gratifying their wishes, supplying their wants, or alleviating their distresses. Our culture might put it this way, to be kind is to be nice. So niceness becomes this new definition of kindness. But there's a problem. The, the problem with all of these definitions is that they are subjective to the recipient of kindness. They're the ones evaluate, evaluating whether there's actual, genera, actual generosity, actual courtesy, actual love, actual care that's taking place. It puts the recipient essentially in the driver's seat of establishing whether or not the action towards them is kind. Was it nice? Did it make me feel good? But the, but the Bible uses the word kindness in an entirely different way because kindness in the Bible is inherently moral in quality, meaning it has an 
has an absolute nature to it. It is objective. It is something that is defined. It is something that we can see. It is something that, that never changes. The, the measure of kindness is always the same because the standard of kindness has been given to us in the Bible. It is set. It is fixed because preeminently, kindness is God. And so God, who sent his son to the earth through his son, Jesus Christ, shows us what kindness really means. And by the way, any of you who have read the gospel accounts will, will be able to, to read several of uh, occurrences where Jesus didn't seem to be particularly nice. But let me tell you, he was kind. He, he was kind because he was always marked by truth and grace. He was always carried about him this objective nature of kindness because God is kind. That's how we understand it. There is a, a, a moral component to kindness. And so if I, if I were to provide a, a simple definition of kindness, I would say that kindness is essentially that which is morally good or superior. It's not perceived, but true and definite. And it has Jesus as the, as the fixed starting point of understanding what kindness really looks like. Let me give you some examples from the scripture. In Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32, we come to understand a little bit what kindness is when, when Paul writes to the church, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's gonna tell you. Be tenderhearted. Be forgiving. Forgive one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's kindness. Kindness is the laying down. The picture of Christ's preferential, sacrificial, initiating love towards others who did not deserve it, by the way. <laughs> so if you're in this room and you've enjoyed the kindness of God in salvation, the forgiveness that comes and not just overlooking your sin because God in his kindness didn't say your sin didn't matter. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is putting your sin on Christ. Jesus himself took the burden, the weight, the punishment of your sin on himself. He died in your place on the cross so that you could have forgiveness. It's not that God overlooks it as if it didn't matter. It mattered so much he put Jesus on the cross for you so that you could enjoy the kindness of God. That's kindness. That's what kindness looks like. It's the laying down, preferential spending of self. It's what we talked about last week. And so I was thinking even this morning, is this like part two of seeing God through, through, through service? And, 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 and in a sense it is, but, but I wanna help us understand what true kindness is. It's not niceness, as our culture would say, because let me tell you, since there is a moral component to kindness and our world is antagonistic and hostile to God, they're gonna turn everything upside down. They're gonna see your kindness in the perspective of their, of their own moral compass and they're gonna call you you a hater, not a lover. They're going to call you wicked, not godly, because they don't understand the kindness that only is found in Jesus Christ. Don't allow the world to condition your understanding 
and to align your heart to the, to the misguided, misrepresented understanding of kind, kindness that is in the world. Understand kindness as you understand Jesus. Luke chapter 6, 35 fills this out for us some more. It says, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is, what church? Kind. He is kind to the unfaithful and the evil. <laughs> what, a, what a great verse. We can reflect the kindness of God not because we're expecting anything in return, but because we trust in the kindness of God. We can give without, uh, without enjoying or experiencing the kickback or the, the positive ramifications of our goodness to others. We can continue to spend because we know that we have a kind God who sees, a kind God who rewards. Galatians chapter 5, 22 you know this verse. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. When we show the kindness of God from our life, we demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is living within we demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit who is showing something, a quality of life that can't happen any other way because there, there can't be consistent, faithful spending and loving of others without anything in return unless there is a, a backfill of God's power and a, and a backfill of God's provision and a backfill of God's help for us in, in causing us and empowering us to do what we can't do apart from God's help. That's why kindness is so important. <laughs> and that's why it comes to the surface for us again in this passage. One more. Exodus chapter 34, verse six. This is the scene of Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses says, show me your glory. Show me yourself, God. I, I want to see all of you. And so God says, fine, I, I will show you myself. So he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he shines his glory before Moses. And this is what God declares about himself. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, of merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is our word, kindness, which is steadfast love. It's the word chesed, the word loyal covenant love of God for his people. And that's what we're gonna find in our passage today in Ruth Chapter 3, verse 10, where Boaz says of Ruth, he says, he said to her, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, that's the same word, chesed, greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You have demonstrated this loyal, faithful love to your mother-in-law, Naomi, and especially your faithful love to your God. You're trusting him. You're believing that he will take care of you. So Naomi and Ruth and Boaz have consistently 
from the very beginning, from chapter one to chapter three, and moving on through the end of chapter four, have consistently oriented their focus on the Lord. We've seen that time and time again. The Lord is, is, is full of their conversation. It's full of their delight. It's full of their focus. And because the Lord is their focus, they have set their eyes on him, then they are not just led by the Lord, they're led by kindness. Because they're led by, by God who is kind. So this outline isn't terribly creative. There are two main points is that Naomi is led by kindness. And what do you think the second one is? Ruth is led by kindness. <laughs> Good. That's, um, that's where we're going today. I-, I want you to see that because the people in this account, the people in this passage love God and love the Lord. They're led by the Lord and they're led by, by kindness. First, it's demonstrated by Naomi. Her kindness is demonstrated by her purpose. We're gonna see her purpose in chapter three, verse one. It says this, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Hmm. Not much needs to be said or explained, really, about recognizing Naomi's heart for Ruth. She wanted Ruth's best. And she wants it in two different ways. First, she says, have I not sought rest for you? This this word for rest is the same word that we saw back in chapter one, verse nine. This is the the word that, that, that Naomi uses in her prayer for Ruth when she says, the Lord grant that you may find rest. This word for rest is, derives from the same root that, that speaks of security and tranquility that a woman, especially a, a single woman, can find in a home of a, of a husband who loves God and loves her. And the, the link that is provided for us of using this same word for rest that she, that she uses here helps us to understand that, that now her prayers for Ruth are coming to fruition. And I just want to pause for a moment because we're going to see, by the way, the same thing happening for Boaz. Ruth is going to recall later on in our passage a prayer that Boaz has prayed over Ruth and Ruth is going to bring that out into the open and God is going to answer that prayer through Boaz. He will be the answer to his own prayers. It's not likely that you're going to enjoy or see or experience the kindness of God unless you're praying that God would be honored in showing his kindness to people. How many of our prayers are about God's kindness to us? You will never find in this little book a prayer or a statement that is ever made about oneself. No statement, no prayer that is meant to be self-serving. And so, so kindness comes because the people, the characters in this story are oriented towards the Lord and their heart is poured out for kindness to others. And so they get to enjoy and experience that because God delights in showing his kindness through his people. Then in She prays that it might be well with you. This word for well is to be good, to have favorable circumstances. And 
And while this is the first time it's used in the book of Ruth, you, the circumstances of this story are, are beginning to, to change on the outside, but, but the kindness of God has always been true. And they have steadied their heart in the belief in the kindness of God from start to finish. Naomi's heart, again, is for Ruth's best. Her desire is for the welfare of her daughter-in-law. And, and by the way, it was not just a, her welfare for the future. It was about her comprehensive welfare. I believe that Naomi cares for Ruth's dignity. She cares for her integrity. She certainly cares for her heart of faith in God and, and was likely instrumental in helping to lead Ruth to this spot. She cares about her future. Ruth obviously has established a dignity among the people in Bethlehem, and Ruth is not about to jeopardize that. It's important to remember this as we move then into our, our next section. So Naomi demonstrates her kindness in her purpose for Ruth, and next she demonstrates her kindness by her plan for Ruth. We see that in verses two to five. She says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go in and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Naomi understands how things work. They, she understands that, that following the harvest of barley and wheat, there's a time of winnowing. He's winnowing barley on the threshing floor, she says. Barley was typically threshed at the, um, at the onset of the dry season, which is usually late May or early June. After all the grain, both the barley and the wheat were gathered. The best threshing floors involved rock outcrops on hilltops. The hard surface was needed to keep the grain free from dirt and to help facilitate sweeping up the grain and gathering it together so it could be used for the future. Often a winnowing fork would toss the grain into the air and as the chaff uh, was broken, the, the winds would blow and blow the, the lighter chaff off or out of the the, the, the location, the threshing floor, and the, the harder grain, the, the denser grain would fall to the floor. The winnowing, one commentator says, was, happens by throwing this grain up with a fork. The, the wind would blow and the grain would fall. Often, this would happen at night because the winds were more favorable in the evening, not the harsh winds of the day. And then owners of the crops would come and spend the night and sleep with the, the, the grain to help guard them from the robbers that would come. Naomi knows this is the time. But for whatever reason, she now tells Ruth to prepare herself. After the season of waiting, and it's not implicit in the text, not, not something that we would normally know, but there's about six to eight weeks that have now transpired between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Another maybe hidden, not so obvious fact is that the beginning of the barley season coincided with Passover, 
and the end of the wheat season coincided with Pentecost. <laughs> These significant moments where the true Redeemer would come and true deliverance would happen. Naomi encourages Ruth to prepare herself. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak. This cloak is thought to be the, the outer garment, and so Naomi cared about the presentation of Ruth. Even though it was dark at night, there was a, a practical understanding that nights in this culture were cool. The, the typical... Um, uh, I want to say the, the weather patterns during this season of life in March or April and May, usually the, the, the days were, were about 80 degrees and they were dry and hot. The nights were cool and also dry, about 54 degrees. She understood, Naomi understood, that Ruth needed to be warm. So she says, grab your extra cloak. It was used often as a blanket. Some would even suggest that Naomi is encouraging Ruth to put off her garments of widowhood and put on her garments of an available uh, uh, single lady. But it's more likely that Naomi cares about the, the practical implications of this cool evening and her being ready. She tells her, instructs Ruth then to, to wait until he has eaten his food. Then make your move, uncover his feet, take action, but trust the Lord. Don't wake him up, and when he does wake up, do what he says. Ruth complies, we find that in verse five, all that you say I will do. Of course this was a bold plan, and even with the best propriety, it had the potential of being completely misunderstood. Even some commentators have suggested that this was a, had a, a manner of impropriety where Ruth may have been offering her services to Boaz to es essentially entice him into this arrangement of being the kinsman redeemer. <laughs> it wasn't normal for a woman to take initiative. And if, bold, if uh, Boaz was proud in any way, this would have been a huge insult. If he was immoral in any way, this could have been disastrous for Ruth's reputation. But if Boaz was kind, if he looked to the Lord, if he was a worthy man, as we see in chapter two, verse one, then this had the makings of success. We see in Naomi a commitment to faith. Her eyes were on the Lord. Her eyes were on and desired the best for her daughter-in-law. One commentator puts it this way, what were the chances of a woman proposing to a man, a younger person proposing to an older, a field worker proposing to a field owner, a foreigner proposing to a native? And that in fulfillment of Naomi's words, Boaz would give Ruth instructions at this hour concerning how to proceed. By this time, Naomi's faith is strong. She has confidence in Boaz's integrity and apparently the, in also the hidden hand of God to govern his reactions even as he awakens in the middle of the night. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz consistently set their eyes on the Lord, and so their life consistently is led by his kindness. 
That was Naomi's kindness. Now let's turn our attention to Ruth, Ruth's kindness. Ruth is led by kindness in verses 6 to 18. First, it's demonstrated by her obedience. Her kindness in submitting and obeying and following the instructions of her elder mother-in-law. Notice in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Ruth does what she's told. She follows every instruction. She doesn't push back. She doesn't try to find a safer option. She doesn't tell Naomi, this is ridiculous. She trusts her mother-in-law. She trusts the integrity of Boaz. And preeminently, she trusts in the care and the kindness of God that she has seen and trusted from start to finish. I can't help but think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, where in describing the, the women of old who set the example for wives, we're told that she was willing to obey and she is not frightened by any fear. And there was a lot to be afraid of. This could have gone very badly. But Naomi, or Ruth, trusts in the Lord. Her dependence is on God and his kindness, and it is steady. Hmm. Their narrator picks up this story at the threshing floor and kind of summarizes the, the previous details of her obedience to the instructions given by Naomi by just simply saying she did just as she was told, every part. We can assume she followed these instructions and now she waits for Boaz to eat and drink. And by the way, the text does not say that Boaz was drunk, but that his heart was in good spirits. The harvest was good. The kindness of God had been seen. The evidence of this um, harvest had, had been um, um, piling up in his threshing floor. He's rejoicing in the Lord for his kindness and goodness, his provision, and he's in good spirits. Ruth waits for him to find a place to sleep. He lies down on a heap of grain. She uncovers his feet and lies down just as Naomi instructs. She does what she's told. Surely, now uncovering his feet, when the night air is uh, beginning to blow across that threshing floor, it says he was startled, which is... Um, Another word for shiver, he shivered. He was chilled by the night air. He went to, to cover his feet and behold, the, the word of surprise, it's in the text. There's somebody at his feet. Who is this? We see the kindness, the kindness of Ruth in her obedience to Naomi. We also see the kindness of Ruth in her humility, demonstrated by her humility in verse nine. It says, Boaz is, is now asking, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This word for servant is, is the word implying a relationship of humility. A word that helps to demonstrate the heart of Ruth in service to Boaz. I am at your service. 
It is, by the way, not the same word that Ruth will use of the female slaves or servants in chapter 2, verse 13. She says there, though I am not one of your servants or one of your maid servants or one of your female slaves. And so now she is uh, presenting herself not in, a, in an, appropriate, an inappropriate context where a slave would have no right to demand or even invite a service or a kindness from their owner, but a posture of service and humility. It was a strategic use of words. But then she adds to her response, I am Ruth, your servant, a bold request. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And with this statement, she not only answers the question, who are you? I am Ruth, but now poses a question, well then who are you, Boaz? Who will you be? This word for Wings is the word for garment. Spread your garment over your servant is what some translations use. Spread your covering over your servant. And what Ruth is doing in this statement is she is recalling the prayer that Boaz prayed over her in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12, in this first encounter with Boaz, Boaz speaks a blessing over her when he says, The Lord repay you. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And Ruth, remembering that prayer, now calls Boaz to make good on that prayer. Boaz has prayed that over her. That's his heart's desire for her. And now Boaz can actually step in and be the answer, really, to his own prayers. This spreading the cover was, a, was pointing to God, the covering and refuge that, 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 that Israel has under his wings. But it was also helps to picture, it was an imagery of a husband's wings in protecting and securing and helping his wife. This gesture of a man covering a woman was a symbolic. Eastern customs signified this establishment of a new relationship in the symbolic declaration of a husband to provide for his wife. And then she couples this with the words, for you are a redeemer. This is not an empty and open request. This is a request that is based on the law. It's based on truth. It's based on what is known about God and what he has provided for provision for me from his word. <laughs> and I think, and the text isn't clear, why did Ruth come at night of all times? How risky could that have been? And I believe, and the text doesn't say, I can't say it emphatically, but I believe that Ruth and Naomi did it this way to help Boaz save face. You see, this request was always made in public. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 7 and 10 help us know the public nature of when this usually happens. In the provision of the law, it would have gone something like this. If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, 
Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who has had his sandal pulled off. And I believe it was Ruth's kindness to Boaz to come in a very risky time to put her reputation on the line, as it were, to extend kindness to Boaz, to help preserve dignity. For whatever reason, he hadn't uh, taken initiative. She did not want to damage his status in the community as a worthy man. She had recognized and enjoyed his patience, his, uh, his um, benevolence towards her. I believe that Ruth and Naomi want to open the door, want to make it known that there's an invitation for this kinsman-redeemer relationship to happen. But they didn't want to corner him or make demands or to shame him in any way. Here is Ruth, the servant, who faithfully points to God. She also demonstrates her kindness through her loyal love. And, and now Boaz begins to speak in response to Ruth's question. We find in verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And I believe encapsulated in this statement we see the modesty of Boaz in not wanting to assume or grasp for something that Ruth was not willing to have. I think his kindness is showing through as well. His patience in waiting and not to assume that he is going to fill this role of redeemer. He's waiting for her to establish that she's ready. Boaz of course, now resorts first. His impulse, his immediate reflex is to go to Yahweh, to the Lord, because the Lord is always in his sights. When he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. And then he says, you didn't go young, after young men, whether rich or poor, meaning I'm not the most eligible bachelor. I understand. I'm not in my prime anymore. And in this, in this verse, you get a hint Again, of Boaz's modesty, his heart was for Ruth, her interests, her best, her companionship, her future. But he's also willing to fulfill the obligation. He does it by highlighting Ruth's sacrificial love, her hesed kindness, her loyal love to Naomi. He puts it on display. He recognizes what Ruth is willing to do in terms of laying down personal interests for the sake of her mother-in-law. You didn't go after what you could have had. You could have married anybody you wanted. You have the looks, you have the reputation, you have the work ethic. You've caught the attention of everybody in the town. But you've willingly laid down personal advantage for the sake of honoring your dead husband and honoring your mother-in-law. You're not thinking about yourself. And because of this, you are a worthy woman. Hmm. By quoting 
this. Boaz elevates Ruth to the same status that the narrator gives to Boaz at the beginning of chapter two. A worthy man. Now a worthy woman is in the spotlight. One commentator says this. Because of her devotion to her mother-in-law and her willingness to abandon all for her, the townspeople knew her true character. But she did not gain reputation by trying to be somebody, by associating with important people. On the contrary, it was her self-effacing embodiment of Israel's lofty covenant standard, her hesed, her kindness, and her loyalty to the family of her deceased husband, especially her mother-in-law, that has won her the praise of all. She is a worthy woman. Now Boaz gives Ruth some information that maybe she wasn't aware of. In verses 12 and 13. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Ruth's heart must have skipped a beat. What? There is a, there's a, a redeemer closer? And maybe she knew, maybe she didn't. The text isn't clear. But, but I can imagine, up to this point, all we've heard is that Boaz is the, is the close kinsman redeemer, and now all of a sudden, there's somebody else in the way. But this leads us now in to our final point. Ruth demonstrates her kindness in her faith in God. Her faith in God. In that moment, she doesn't say, whoops, time out, uh, I retract that proposal. Um, sorry, it's, it's off. I'm not sure I want to walk through this process. But Ruth, in humility, submits to the plan. She does what Naomi has instructed by following after the advice and the recommendation of Boaz himself. Notice in verses 14 to 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, Let it be known that the woman came to the th- let it not be known that the woman came to the, thresh- the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. There's so much here that we could draw attention to, but for the sake of time, I want you to recognize again the kindness of God and the faith of Ruth to move through this process. Boaz gives her six measures, and there's a a purpose behind this. I believe the kindness of Boaz flowing out in in essentially an answer to to the complaining that Naomi had done in chapter one. Remember in Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And Boaz says, No. No, you've never been empty. Your, 
I don't want you to come back empty-handed, Ruth. I want you to help your mother-in-law understand she has always been full because she's always had God. And in this moment, you can imagine Ruth wondering, okay, what's next, Naomi? What's the plan? And the plan of Naomi and the plan of God for his people throughout time has been wait. Wait, my daughter. Rest, my daughter. Sit and dwell and stay, my daughter. You can rest because your Redeemer will not rest. Now, that should sound really familiar, right? We'll talk about the Redeemer, redemption, more next week. But let me bring this in the next couple of moments to a head for us to help us understand the significance of this story in terms of applying to us in terms of kindness. In Philippians chapter 2, we find a, a summary of kindness in, a, in a, a call to kindness, as it were, for the people of God's church. When, when Paul will say, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Meaning, if you have experienced and enjoyed the kindness of God, his encouragement, his comfort, his love, if you've participated and enjoyed the presence of the Holy Spirit, if you've experienced his affection and sympathy, then there is something that needs to guide you because as you are setting your eyes on the Lord, you need to set your heart on the things of the Lord. You need to be driven by the same kind of kindness. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the kindness of God in salvation, in saving you from sin, you will never be able to demonstrate or even experience the kind of kindness we're talking about. In order to show kindness, you need to experience the kindness of God in salvation first. His forgiveness for sin in cleansing you and making you, giving you right standing with God. How can it be? Only because of the kindness of God for you. But when we experience God's kindness, it moves us into something. In verses three and four, we find the continuing narrative. <coughs> it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's kindness. That's what we see in our story today, and that is the mark of true kindness. It's objective kindness. It's a spending sort of kindness. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Verse five tells us why. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death on the cross now that should sound really familiar we saw that in our story today humility service obedience it's all then to the glory of God is, is where 
Paul will wrap this up. Why? What's the motivation? The motivation is set for us in verses 9 to 11. It says, Therefore God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the motivation, the glory of God. Not what you get out of it, not what people think of you, not the good name and reputation you might have in the community, not the way it helps you feel about people's appreciation of you. You do it for the glory of God through good and bad, through hard times and and very prosperous times because God is the goal and his glory is the end point of all the kindness we, we show. And it's because we've experienced the kindness of God ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people. Help us to set our eyes on things above where you are and not on the things of this earth. May our attention and our focus be on the Lord so that we can be led by you and thus led by kindness, which isn't always perceived as kindness from the world but may we be driven by this objective reality, this moral um, statement that we see throughout the scriptures of being marked by truth and grace. May that be true of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.